This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Alana Roche, Phil Francis, Taylor Grimes, Catalina, Bracella, Malia Scotch Marmo, Michael Lancaster, and S. McTaggart. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these uh, wonderful names that I just read are supporters of the Sleepy Podcast on Patreon.com, which is an amazing site where you can go on and support creators of the work that you like. So people go on and they donate a dollar a month, two dollars a month, five dollars a month with the Sleepy Podcast gets you access to a special Patreon poetry feed where I send you exclusive poetry readings twice a month just for donating that you won't hear anywhere else. So, if this show has maybe helped you get better sleep during the night, uh, consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way, and no matter how much you donate, as soon as you do, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show. So you will be emblazoned on the halls of the Sleepy Podcast forevermore. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski. And the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan.
Tonight, we're going to read a book that I don't think I've personally read um, since I was maybe 10 or 11 years old. I remember this being one of the books on our bookshelf that always eluded me. And after I swept through all the Harry Potter books that were available at the time, I think this was the thing that I read right after to fill the void left by J.K. Rowling. Tonight, we're going to be reading The Prince and the Pauper by Mark Twain. I'm very excited to read this book. Um, and I would love to send this book to one of you. Um, it's a really nice copy. It's one of those Puffin Classics copies. And uh, if you want to see it, you can go to the Sleepy Podcast Instagram, which is sleepy underscore podcast. I would love to send this um, to a listener. So if you're interested in receiving this copy of Prince and the Popper that I'm reading on the show right now, you can go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. And as long as you donate between today, Sunday, and next Sunday uh, for a week, then you will be entered into the raffle to receive Prince and the Popper. And I'll write a note of your choosing on the inside if you like, or you can just let me write one myself. All right, tonight, The Prince and the Popper by Mark Twain. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. The Birth of the Prince and the Pauper In the ancient city of London, on a certain autumn day in the second quarter of the 16th century, a boy was born to a poor family of the name of Canty, who did not want him. On the same day, another English child was born to a rich family of the name of Tudor, who did want him. All England wanted him too. England had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. By day, London was a sight to see, with gay banners waving from every balcony and housetop and splendid pageants marching along. By night, it was again a sight to see, with great bonfires at every corner and troops of revelers making merry around them. There was no talk in all England but of the new baby, Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales, who lay lapped in silks and satins, unconscious of all this fuss, not knowing that great lords and ladies were tending him and watching over him, and not caring either. But there was no talk about the other baby, Tom Canty, lapped in his poor rags, except among the family of paupers whom he had just come to trouble with his presence. Chapter 2 Tom's Early Life Let us skip a number of years 
London was 1,500 years old and was a great town for that day. It had 100,000 inhabitants, something double as many. The streets were very narrow and crooked and dirty, especially in the part where Tom McCanty lived, which was not far from London Bridge. The houses were of wood, with the second story projecting over the first and the third sticking its elbows out beyond the second. The higher the houses grew, the broader they grew. They were skeletons of strong crisscross beams with solid material between, coated with plaster. The beams were painted red or blue or black, according to the owner's taste, and this gave the houses a very picturesque look. The windows were small, glazed with little diamond-shaped panes, and they opened outward on hinges like doors. The house which Tom's father lived in was called Offal Court, out of Pudding Lane. It was small, decayed, and rickety, and packed full of wretchedly poor families. Canty's tribe occupied a room on the third floor. The mother and father had a sort of bedstead in the corner. But Tom, his grandmother, and his two sisters, Bet and Nan, had all the floor to themselves and might sleep where they choose. There were the remains of a blanket or two and some bundles of ancient and dirty straw, but these cannot rightly be called beds. They were kicked into a general pile. Mornings and selections made from the mass at night were service. Bet and Nan were fifteen years old, twins. They were good-hearted girls, unclean, clothed in rags and profoundly ignorant. Their mother was like them, but the father and the grandmother were a couple of fiends. They got drunk whenever they could, then they fought each other or anybody else who came in the way. They cursed and swore always, drunk or sober. John Canty was a thief, and his mother a beggar. They made beggars of the children, but failed to make thieves of them. Among, but not of, the dreadful rabble that inhabited the house was a good old priest, whom the king had turned out of the house and home with a pension of a few farthings, and he used to get the children aside and teach them right ways, secretly. Father Andrew also taught Tom little Latin and how to read and write, and would have done the same with the girls, but they were afraid of the jeers of their friends. All awful court was just such another hive as Canty's house. Drunkenness, riot, and brawling were the order there every night and nearly all night long. Broken heads were as common as hunger in that place. Yet little Tom was not unhappy. He had a hard time of it but did not know it. It was the sort of time that all the awful court boys had. Therefore, he supposed it was the correct and comfortable thing. When he came home empty-handed at night, he knew his father would curse him and thrash him first, and that when he was done, the awful grandmother would do it all over again and improve on it. And that away in the night, his starving mother would slip to him stealthily with any miserable scrap 
what crust she had been able to save for him by going hungry herself. Notwithstanding, she was often soundly beaten for it by her husband. No, Tom's life went along well enough, especially in summer. He begged just enough to save himself. The laws were stringent and the penalties heavy, so he put in a good deal of his time listening to good Father Andrew's charming old tales and legends about giants and fairies, dwarves and genie, and enchanted castles and gorgeous kings and princes. His head grew to be full of these wonderful things, and many a night, as he lay in the dark on his straw, he unleashed his imagination and delicious picturings to himself of the charmed life of a petted prince in a regal palace. One desire came in time to haunt him day and night. It was to see a real prince with his own eyes. He often read the priest's old books and got him to explain them. His dreamings and readings worked certain changes in him by and by. His dream people were so fine that he grew to lament his shabby clothing and his dirt and to wish to be clean and better clad. He went on playing in the mud just the same and enjoying it too, but instead of splashing around in the Thames solely for the fun of it, he began to find an added value in it because of the washings it afforded. By and by, Tom's reading and dreaming about princely life wrought such a strong effect upon him that he began to act like a prince, unconsciously. His speech and manners became curiously ceremonious and courtly to the vast amusement of his intimates. But Tom's influence among these young people began to grow now, day by day. He seemed to know so much, and he could do and say such marvelous things. And withal, he was so deep and wise. Tom's remarks and Tom's performances were reported by the boys to their elders, and these also presently began to discuss Tom Canty and to regard him as a most gifted and extraordinary creature. Full-grown people brought their perplexities to Tom for solution and were often astonished at the wit and wisdom of his decisions. In fact, he was become a hero to all who knew him except his own family. Privately, after a while, Tom organized a royal court. He was the prince. His special comrades were guards, chamberlains, equerries, lords and ladies in waiting, and the royal family. Daily, the mock prince was received with elaborate ceremonials borrowed by Tom from his romantic readings. Daily the great affairs of the Mimic Kingdom were discussed in the Royal Council, and daily His Mimic Highness issued decrees to his imaginary armies, navies, and viceroyalties. After which he would go forth in his rags and beg a few farthings, eat his poor crust, take his customary cuffs and abuse, and then stretch himself upon his handful of foul straw and resume his empty grandeurs in his dreams. And still his desire to look just once upon a real prince in the flesh grew upon him day by day and week by week 
until at last it absorbed all other desires and became the one passion of his life. One January day, on his usual begging tour, he tramped despondently up and down the region round about Mincing Lane and Little East Jeep, barefooted and cold, looking in at cookshop windows and longing for the dreadful pork pies and other deadly inventions displayed there. For to him, these were dainties fit for angels, that is, judging by the smell, for it had never been his good luck to own and eat one. There was a cold drizzle of rain. The atmosphere was murky. It was a melancholy day. And that night, Tom reached home so wet and tired and hungry that it was not possible for his father and grandmother to observe his forlorn condition and not be moved. After their fashion, wherefore, they gave him a coughing at once and sent him to bed. For a long time his pain and hunger and the swearing and fighting going on in the building kept him awake. But at last, his thoughts drifted away to far, romantic lands, and he fell asleep in the company of jeweled and gilded princelings. And then, as usual, he dreamed that he was a princeling himself. All night long he moved among great lords and ladies in a blaze of light, breathing perfumes, drinking in delicious music, and when he awoke in the morning and looked upon the wretchedness about him, his dream had had its usual effect. It had intensified the sordidness of his surroundings a thousandfold. Then came bitterness and heartbreak and tears. Tom's Meeting with the Prince Tom got up hungry and sauntered hungry away but with his thoughts busy with the shadowy splendors of his night's dreams. He wandered here and there in the city, hardly noticing where he was going. By and by he found himself at Temple Bar, the farthest from home he had ever traveled in that direction. He stopped and considered a moment, then fell into his imaginings again and passed on outside the walls of London. The Strand had ceased to be a country road then, and regarded itself as a street, but by a strained construction, for, though there was a tolerably compact row of houses on one side of it, there were only some scattering of great buildings on the other, these being palaces of rich nobles, with ample and beautiful ground stretching to the river. Tom discovered Charing Village presently, and rested himself with a beautiful cross built there by a bereaved king of earlier days, then idled down a quiet, lovely road past the great cardinal's stately palace toward a far more mighty and majestic palace beyond, Westminster. Tom stared in glad wonder at the vast pile of masonry, the wide-spreading wings, the frowning bastion and turrets, the huge stone gateway, with its gilded bars and its magnificent array of colossal granite lions, and the other signs and symbols of English royalty. Here, indeed, was a king's palace, 
Might ye not hope to see a prince now, a prince of flesh and blood, if heaven were willing? At each side of the gilded gate stood a living statue, that is to say, an erect and stately and motionless man-at-arms, clad from head to heel in shining steel armor. At a respectful distance were many country folk and people from the city, waiting for any glimpse of royalty. Splendid carriages with splendid people in them and splendid servants outside were arriving and departing by several other noble gateways that pierced the royal enclosure. Poor Tom, in his rags, approached and was moving slowly and timidly past the sentinels with a beating heart and a rising hope when all at once he caught sight through the golden bars of a spectacle that almost made him shout for joy. Within was a comely boy, tanned and brown, whose clothing was all of lovely silks and satins, shining with jewels, at his hip a little jeweled sword and dagger, dainty buskins on his feet with red heels, and on his head a jaunty crimson cap with drooping plumes fastened with a great sparkling gem. Oh, he was a prince, a prince, a living prince, a real prince, without the shadow of a question, and the prayer of the pauper boy's heart was answered at last. Tom's breath came quick and short with excitement, and his eyes grew big with wonder and delight. Everything gave way in his mind instantly to one desire, and that was to get close to the prince and have a good, devouring look at him. Before he knew what he was about, he had his face against the gate bars. The next instant, one of the soldiers snatched him rudely away and sent him spinning among the gaping crowd of country gawks and London idlers. The soldier said, Mind thy manners, thou young beggar. The crowd jeered and laughed, but the young prince sprang to the gate with his face flushed and his eyes flashing with indignation and cried out, How dost thou use a poor lad like that? How dost thou use the king, my father's meanest subject, so? Open the gates and let him in. You should have seen that fickle crowd snatch off their hats then. You should have heard them cheer and shout, Long live the Prince of Wales. The soldiers presented arms with their halberds, opened the gates, and presented again as the little Prince of Poverty passed in, in his fluttering rags, to join hands with the Prince of Limitless Plenty. Edward Tudor said, Thou lookest tired and hungry. Thou hast been treated ill. Come with me. Half a dozen attendants sprang forward too. I don't know what. Interfere, no doubt. But they were waved aside with a royal gesture. And they stopped stock still where they were, like so many statues. Edward took Tom to a rich apartment in the palace which he called his cabinet. By his command, a repast was brought such as Tom had never encountered before except in books. The prince, 
with princely delicacy and breeding, sent away his servants, so that his humble guests might not be embarrassed by their critical presence. Then he sat nearby and asked questions while Tom ate. What is thy name, lad? Tom Canty, and it pleased thee, sir. Tis an odd one. Where dost live? In the city, please thee, sir. Awful court, out of Pudding Lane. Awful court. Truly, tis another odd one. Has parents? Parents have I, sir, and a grandam. Likewise, that is, but indifferently precious to me. God forgive me if it be offense to say it. Also twin sisters, Nan and Beth. Then is thy grandam not overkind to thee, I take it. Neither to any other is she, so please your worship. She hath a wicked heart, and worketh evil all her days. Doth she mistreat thee? There be times that she stayeth her hand, being asleep or overcome with drink. But when she hath her judgment clear again, she maketh it up to me with goodly beatings. A fierce look came into the little prince's eyes. He cried out, What? Beatings? Oh, indeed, yes. Please you, sir. Beatings? And now so frail and little. Hark ye, before the night come, she shall hire to the tower. The king, my father, in sooth, you forget, sir, her low degree. The tower is for the great alone. True, indeed. I had not thought of that. I will consider of her punishment. Is thy father kind to thee? Not more than my gammer can't he, sir. Fathers be alike, mayhap. Mine hath not a doll's temper. He smiteth with a heavy hand, yet spareth me. He spareth me not always with his tongue, though, sooth to say. How doth thy mother use thee? She is good, sir, and giveth me neither sorrow nor pain of any sort, and Nan and Beth are like to her in this. How old be these? Fifteen, then it please you, sir. The Lady Elizabeth, my sister, is fourteen, and Lady Jane Grey, my cousin, is of mine own age, and comely and gracious withal. But my sister and Lady Mary, with her gloomy mien, and, look you, do thy sisters forbid their servants to smile, lest the sin destroy their soul? They, oh, dost think, sir, that they have servants? The little prince contemplated the little pauper gravely a moment, then said, And prithee, why not? Who helpeth them undress at night? Who attireth them when they rise? None, sir. What is have them take off their garment and sleep without, like the beasts? Their garment? Have they but one? Ah, good, your worship. What would they do with more? Truly they have not two bodies each. 
It is a quaint and marvelous thought. Thy pardon, I had meant to laugh, but thy good Nan and thy Bet shall have raiment and lackeys now, and that soon too. My cofferer shall look into it. No, thank me not, tis nothing. Thou speakest well. Thou hast an easy grace to it. Art learned. I know not if I am or not, sir. The good priest that is called Father Andrew taught me of his kindness from his books. Knowest thou the Latin? But scantly, sir, I doubt. Learn it, lad. Tis hard only at first. The Greek is harder. But neither these nor any tongues else, I think, are hard to the Lady Elizabeth and my cousin. Thou shouldest hear the damsels at it. But tell me of thy awful court. Hast thou a pleasant life there? In truth, yes, so please you, sir. Save when one is hungry. There be Punch and Judy shows and monkeys. Oh, such antic creatures and so bravely dressed. And there be plays wherein they that play do shout and fight till all are slain and tis fine to see, and costeth but a farthing, albeit tis main hard to get a farthing, please your worship. Tell me more. We lads of Uffle Court do strive against each other with the cudgel, like defile fashion of the apprentices sometimes. The prince's eyes flashed, said he, Mary, that I would not mislike. Tell me more. We strive in races, sir, to see who of us all shall be fleetest. That would I like also. Speak on. In summer, sir, we wade and swim in the canals and in the river, and each doth duck his neighbor and spatter him with water and dive and shout and tumble and would be worth my father's kingdom but to enjoy it once. Prithee, go on. We dance and sing about the maypole in Cheapside. We play in the sand, each covering his neighbor up. In times we make mud pastry. We do fairly wallow in the mud, sir, saving your worship's presence. Oh, prithee, say no more, tis glorious. If that I could but clothe me in raiment like to thine, and strip my feet, and revel in the mud once, just once, with none to rebuke me, or forbid, meseemeth I could forgo the crown. And if that I could clothe me once, sweet sir, as thou art clad, just once. Oh, what is like it? Then so shall it be. Doff thy rags, and don these splendors, lad. It is a brief happiness, but we'll be not less keen for that. We will have it a while we may, and change again before any come to molest. A few minutes later, the little Prince of Wales was garlanded with Tom's fluttering odds and ends, and the little Prince of Popperdom was tricked out in the gaudy plumage of royalty. The two winds stood side by side before a great mirror, and lo, a miracle. There not seemed to have been much any change made 
They stared at each other, then at the glass, then at each other again. At last the puzzled princeling said, What dost thou make of this? Ah, good your worship, require me not to answer. It is not me that one of my degree should utter the thing. Then will I utter it. Thou hast the same hair, the same eyes and same voice and manner, the same form and stature, the same face and countenance that I bear. Fared we forth naked, there is none could say which was you and which the Prince of Wales. And now that I am clothed as thou art clothed, it seemeth I should be able the more nearly to feel as thou didst when the brute soldier, hark ye, is this not a bruise upon your hands? Yes, but it is a slight thing, and your worship knoweth that the poor man at arms. Peace. It was a shameful thing, and a cruel, cried the little prince, stamping his bare foot. If the king, stir not a step till I come again, it is a command. In a moment, he had snatched up and put away an article of national importance that lay upon a table, and was out at the door and flying through the palace grounds in his bannered rags with a hot face and glowing eyes. As soon as he reached the great gate, he seized the bars and tried to shake them, shouting, Open, unbar the gate. The soldier that had maltreated Tom obeyed promptly, and as the prince burst through the portal, half smothered with royal wrath, the soldier fetched him a sounding box on the ear that sent him whirling to the roadway and said, Take that, thou beggar spawn, for what thou gost me with his highness. The crowd roared with laughter. The prince picked himself out of the mud and made fiercely at the sentry, shouting, I am the Prince of Wales. My person is sacred, and thou shalt hang for laying thy hand upon me. The soldier brought his halberd to a present arms and said mockingly, I salute your gracious highness. Then angrily, Be off, thou crazy rubbish. Here the jeering crowd closed round the poor little prince and hustled him far down the road, hooting him and shouting, Way for his royal highness, way for the Prince of Wales. The Prince's Troubles Begin After hours of persistent pursuit and persecution, the little prince was at last deserted by the rabble and left to himself. As long as he had been able to rage against the mob and threaten it royally and royally utter commands that were good stuff to laugh at, he was very entertaining. But when weariness finally forced him to be silent, he was no longer of use to his tormentors and they sought amusement elsewhere. He looked about him now, but could not recognize the locality. He was within the city of London. That was all he knew. He moved on aimlessly, and in a little while the houses thinned 
and the passers-by are infrequent. He bathed his bleeding feet in the brook which flowed there where Farragut Street now is. He rested a few moments, then passed on, and presently came upon a great space with only a few scattered houses in it and a prodigious church. He recognized this church. Scaffoldings were about everywhere, and swarms of workmen, for it was undergoing elaborate repairs. The prince took heart at once. He felt that his troubles were at an end now. He said to himself, It is the ancient Grey Friars Church, which the king my father hath taken from the monks and given for a home forever for poor and forsaken children, and new named it Christ Church. Right gladly will they serve the son of him who hath done so generously by them. He was soon in the midst of a crowd of boys who were running, jumping, playing at ball and leapfrog, and otherwise disporting themselves, and right noisily too. They were all dressed alike, and the fashion which in the day prevailed among serving men and apprentices. That is to say, each had on the crown of his head a flat black cap about the size of a saucer. From beneath it the hair fell, unparted to the middle of the forehead, and was cropped straight around, a clerical band at the neck, a blue gown that fitted closely and hung as low as the knees or lower, full sleeves, a broad red belt, bright yellow stockings, guarded above the knees, low shoes with large metal buckles. It was a sufficiently ugly costume. The boys stopped their play and flocked about the prince, who said with native dignity, Good lads, say to your master that Edward, Prince of Wales, desires speech with him. A great shout went up at this, and one rude fellow said, Mary, art thou his grace's messenger, beggar? This sally brought more laughter. Poor Edward drew himself up proudly and said, I am the prince, and it ill beseemeth you that feed upon the king my father's bounty to use me so. This was vastly enjoyed as the laughter testified. The youth who had first spoken shouted to his comrades, O oh, swine, slaves, pensioners of his grace's princely father, where be your manners? Down on your marrow bones, all of ye, and do reverence to his kingly port and royal rags. With boisterous mirth, they dropped upon their knees and did mock homage to their prey. The prince spurned to the nearest boy with his foot and said fiercely, Take thou that, till the marrow come and I build thee a gibbet. Ah, but this was not a joke. This was going beyond fun. The laughter seized on the instant and fury took its place. A dozen shouted, Hail him forth, to the horse pond, to the horse pond. Where be the dogs? Ho oh, there, lion, ho, oh, fangs. Then followed such a thing as England had never seen before. 
the sacred person of the heir to the throne, rudely buffeted by plebeian hand and set upon and torn by dogs. As night drew to a close that day, the prince found himself far down in a close-built portion of the city. His body was bruised, his hands were bleeding, and his rags were all besmirched with mud. He wandered on and on and grew more and more bewildered, and so tired and faint he could hardly drag one foot after the other. He had ceased to ask questions of anyone, since they brought him only insult instead of information. He kept muttering to himself, Awful Cor, that is the name. If I can but find it before my strength is wholly spent and I draw, then am I saved. First people will take me to the palace and prove that I have none of theirs but the true prince, and I shall have mine own again. And now and then his mind reverted to his treatment by those rude Christ hospital boys, and he said, When I am king, they shall not have bread and shelter only, but also teachings out of books. For a full belly is little worth where the mind is starved and the heart. I will keep this diligently in my remembrance, that this day's lesson be not lost upon me, and my people suffer thereby, for learning softeneth the heart, and breedeth gentleness and charity. The lights began to twinkle. It came on to rain. The wind rose, and a raw, gusty night set in. The homeless heir to the throne of England still moved on, drifting deeper into the maze of squalid alleys. Suddenly a great drunken ruffian collared him and said, Now to this time of night again, and hast not thou brought a farthing home, I warrant me. If it be so, and I do not break all the bones in thy lean body, then am I not John Canty, but some other. The prince twisted himself loose and eagerly said, Oh, art his father, truly. Sweet heaven granted be so. Then wilt thou fetch him away and restore me. I know not what thou meanest, but I know I am thy father, as thou shalt soon have cause to. Oh, jest not. I can bear no more. Take me to the king, my father, and he will make thee rich beyond thy wildest dreams. Believe me, man, believe me. I speak no lie, but only the truth. Put forth thy hand and save me. I am indeed the Prince of Wales. The man stared down, stupefied, upon the lad, and then shook his head and muttered, Gone stark mad as any Tom of Bedlam then collared him once more, and said with a chorus laugh and an oath. But mad or no mad, I and thy grammar canty will soon find where the soft places in thy bones lie, or I'm no true man. With this he dragged the frantic and struggling prince away, and disappeared up a front court, followed by a delighted 
and noisy swarm of human vermin. Tom, as a patrician. Tom Canty, left alone in the prince's cabinet, made good use of his opportunity. He turned himself this way and that before the great mirror, admiring his finery, then walked away, imitating the prince's high-bred carriage and still observing results in the glass. Next he drew the beautiful sword and bowed, kissing the blade and laying it across his breast as he had seen a noble knight do, by way of salute to the lieutenant of the tower five or six weeks before when delivering the great lords of Norfolk and Surrey into his hands for captivity. Tom played with the jeweled dagger that hung upon his thigh. He examined the costly and exquisite ornaments of the room. He tried each of the sumptuous chairs and thought how proud he would be if the awful court heard could only peep in and see him in his grandeur. At the end of half an hour, it suddenly occurred to him that the prince was gone a long time. Then right away he began to feel lonely. Very soon he fell to listening and longing and ceased to toy with the pretty things about him. He grew uneasy, then restless, then distressed. Suppose someone should come and catch him in the prince's clothes and the prince not there to explain. Might they not hang him at once and inquire into his case afterward? He had heard that the great were prompt about all small matters. His fears rose higher and higher, and trembling he softly opened the door to the antechamber, resolved to fly and seek the prince, and through him protection and release. Six gorgeous gentlemen servants and two young pages of high degree, clothed like butterflies, sprung to their feet and bowed low before him. He stepped quickly back and shut the door. He said, Oh, they mock at me. They will go and tell. Oh, why came I here to cast away my life? He walked up and down the floor filled with nameless fears, listening, starting at every trifling sound. Presently the door swung open, and a silken page said, The Lady Jane Grey. The door closed, and a sweet young girl, richly clad, bounded toward him. But she stopped suddenly, and said in a distressed voice, Oh, what aileth thee, my lord? Tom's breath was nearly failing him, but he made a shift to stammer out. Ah, be merciful thou, and soothe I am no lord, but only poor Tom Canty of Uffle Court in the city. Prithee let me see the prince, and he will of his grace restore me to my rags, and let me hence unhurt. Oh, be thou merciful and save me. By this time the boy was on his knees and supplicating with his eyes and uplifted hands 
as well as with his tongue. The young girl seemed horror-stricken. She cried out, Oh, my Lord, on thy knees, and to me. Then she fled away in fright, and Tom, smitten with despair, sank down, murmuring, There is no help, there is no hope, now will they come and take me. Whilst he lay there, benumbed with terror, dreadful tidings were speeding through the palace. The whisper flew from menial to menial, from lord to lady, down all the long corridors, from story to story, from saloon to saloon. The prince hath gone mad, the prince hath gone mad. Soon every saloon, every marble hall, had its groups of glittering lords and ladies talking earnestly together in whispers, and every face had in it dismay. Presently a splendid official came marching by these groups, making solemn proclamation. In the name of the king, let none list to this false and foolish matter upon pain of death, nor discuss the same, nor carry it abroad. In the name of the king. The whispering ceased as suddenly as if the whisperers had been stricken dumb. Soon there was a general buzz along the corridors of the prince. See, the prince comes. Poor Tom came slowly walking past the low bowing groups, trying to bow in return, and in meekly gazing upon his strange surroundings with bewildered and pathetic eyes. Great nobles walked upon each side of him, making him lean upon them and so steady his steps. Behind him followed the court physicians and some servants. Presently Tom found himself in the noble apartment of the palace and heard the door close behind him. Around him stood those who had come with him. Before him, at a little distance, reclined a very large and very fat man, with a wide, pulpy face and a stern expression. His large head was very gray, and his whiskers, which were wore only around his face like a frame, were gray also. His clothing was of rich stuff, but old and slightly frayed in places. One of his swollen legs had a pillow under it and was wrapped in bandages. This stern countenanced invalid was the dread Henry VIII. He said, and his face grew gentle as he began to speak, How now, my lord Edward, my prince? hast been minded to cozen me, the good king thy father, with a sorry jest. Poor Tom was listening, as well as his day's faculties would let him, to the beginning of this speech, but that when the words, me, the good king, fell upon his ear, his face blanched, and he dropped as instantly upon his knees as if a shot had brought him there. Lifting his hand, he exclaimed, Thou the king, then am I undone indeed. 
This speech seemed to stun the king. His eyes wandered from face to face aimlessly, then rested, bewildered, upon the boy before him. Then he said in a tone of deep disappointment, Alack, I believe the rumor disproportioned to the truth, but I fear me, tis not so. He breathed a heavy sigh and said in a gentle voice, Come to thy father, child, thou art not well. Tom was assisted to his feet and approached the majesty of England, humble and trembling. The king took the frightened face between his hands and gazed earnestly and lovingly into it a while, as if seeking some grateful sign of returning reason there, then pressed the curly head against his breast and patted it tenderly. Presently he said, Dost thou know thy father, child? Break not mine old heart. Say thou knowest me. Thou dost know me, dost thou not? Yea, thou art my dread lord the king, whom God preserve. True, true, that is well. Be comforted, tremble not so. There is none here who would hurt thee. There is none here but loves thee. Thou art better now. Thy ill dream passeth, is it not so? And thou knowest myself now also, is not so? I pray thee of thy grace, believe me. I did but speak the truth, most dread Lord, for I am a pauper born, and tis by a sore mischance I am here, albeit I was therein nothing blameful. I am but young to die, and thou canst save me with one little word. Oh, speak it, sir. Die. Talk not so, sweet prince. Thou shalt not die. Tom dropped upon his knees with a glad cry. God, requite thy mercy. O oh, my king, and save thee long to bless thy land. Then springing up, he turned a joyful face towards the two lords in waiting, and exclaimed, Thou heardest it, I am not to die, the king hath said it. There was no movement, save all that bowed with grave respect, but no one spoke. He hesitated, a little confused, then turned timidly toward the king, saying, I may go now? Go, surely if thou desirest, why not tarry yet a little? Whither wouldst thou go? Tom dropped his eyes and answered humbly. For adventure I mistook, but I did think me free. So was I moved to seek again the kennel where I was born and bred to misery, yet which harboreth my mother and my sisters and so is home to me whereas these pomps and splendors whereunto I am not used. Oh, please you, sir, to let me go. The king was silent and thoughtful a while, and his face betrayed a growing distress and uneasiness. Presently he said, with something of hope in his voice, 
perchance he is but mad upon this one strain, and hath his wits unmarred as toucheth other matter. God send it may be so. We will make trial. Then he asked Tom a question in Latin, and Tom answered him lamely in the same tongue. The king was delighted and showed it. The lords and doctors manifested their gratification also. The king said, "'Twas not according to his schooling and ability, but showeth that his mind is but diseased, not stricken fatally. How say you, sir?" The physician addressed bowed low, and replied, "'It jumpeth with mine own conviction, sire, that thou hast divined aright.' The king looked pleased with his encouragement, and continued with a good heart. Now mark ye all, we will try him further. He put a question to Tom in French. Tom stood silent for a moment, embarrassed by having so many eyes centered upon him, then said diffidently, I have no knowledge of this tongue, so please your majesty. The king fell back upon his couch. The attendants flew to his assistance, but he put them aside and said, Trouble me not. It is nothing but a scurvy faintness. Raise me. There, tis sufficient. Come hither, child. There, rest thy poor troubled head upon thy father's heart and be at peace. Thou'lt soon be well. "'Tis but a passing fantasy. "'Fear thou not. "'Thou'd soon be well.' "'Then he turned toward the company. "'His gentle manner changed, "'and baleful lightnings began to play from his eyes. "'He said, "'List ye all. "'This, my son, is mad, "'but it is not permanent. "'Overstudy hath done this, "'and somewhat too much.' Of confinement. Away with his books and teachers, see ye to it. Pleasure him with sports, beguile him in wholesome ways so that his health come again. He raised himself higher still and went on with energy. He is mad, but he is my son, and England's heir, and mad or sane, still shall he reign. And hear ye further and proclaim it. Whoso speaketh of this, his distemper worketh against the peace and order of these realms, and shall go to the gallows. Give me to drink. I burn. This sorrow sappeth my strength. There, take away the cup. Support me. There, that is well. Mad is he. Were he a thousand times mad, Yet is he Prince of Wales, and I, the king, will confirm it. This very morrow shall be installed in his princely dignity and do an ancient form. Take instant order for it, my lord Hertford. One of the nobles knelt at the royal couch and said, The king's majesty knoweth that the hereditary great marshal of England lieth attained in the tower. There were not meat that one attained. Peace. Insult not mine ears with this hated name, 
Is this man to live forever? Am I to be balked of my will? Is the prince to tarry uninstalled? Because forsooth, the realm lacketh an earl marshal free of treasonable taint to invest him with his honors. No, by the splendor of God, warn my parliament to bring me Norfolk's doom before the sun rise again, else shall they answer for it grievously. Lord Hereford said, The king's will is law, and rising returned to his former place. Gradually the wrath faded out of the old king's face, and he said, Kiss me, my prince. There, what fearest thou? Am I not thy loving father? Thou art good to me, that I am unworthy, O mighty and gracious Lord. That in truth I know. But, but it grieveth me to think of him that is to die, and... Ah, tis like thee, tis like thee. I know thy heart is still the same, even though thy mind hath suffered her, for thou art ever a gentle spirit. But this duke standeth between thee and thine honors. I will have another in his stead. Comfort thee, my prince. Trouble not thy poor head with this matter. But is it not that I speed from him, hence my liege? How long might he not live but for me? Take no thought of him, my prince. He is not worthy. Kiss me once again, and go to thy trifles and amusements, for my malady distresseth me. I am weary, and would rest. Go with thine uncle Hertford, and thy people, and come again when my body is refreshed. Tom, heavy-hearted, was conducted from the presence, and his spirits sank lower and lower as he moved between the glittering files of bowing courtiers, for he recognized that he was indeed a captive now, and might remain forever shut up in this gilded cage, a forlorn and friendless prince, except God in his mercy take pity on him and set him free and turn where he would. He seemed to see floating in the air the severed head and the remembered face of the great Duke of Norfolk, the eyes fixed on him reproachfully. His old dreams had been so pleasant, but this reality was so dreary. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.